you would turn with me in your New Testament to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be considering a text there in a moment, Philippians 2. It's a joy to be with you this morning and to be able to worship our God together. It's always the highlight of my week and I'm sure and I hope that it is for you as well where we get to experience a foretaste of the glory that is in our future as we just sing about. We long for heaven and in heaven we'll be before God praising Him and worshiping Him for eternity, basking in the light of His glory, and we certainly get to experience that to a measure this morning as we open His Word, as we study, and as we glorify His name in worship. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know you're honored guest, and we certainly would like for you to come back if you have another opportunity. You've been an encouragement to us. We hope that this worship has been edifying and encouraging to you, and I hope that continues as well in this lesson. Before we get into the lesson, I did just want to very briefly express my appreciation for the men who have been teaching class alongside me this quarter. JT started off in Galatians, and then um, Aaron started Ephesians, and Scott just finished up Philippians. We've got Randy to look forward to in Colossians starting next Sunday, Lord willing. And to me, it's been very encouraging I know what a great deal of time and effort it takes to prepare for a Bible class, and these men have put in their time and effort, and I certainly appreciate the sacrifice of that time and energy that they've submitted to and considered to be a part of, and I think everyone's been encouraged and edified by it. Uh, To that extent, we've been having some lessons throughout this quarter, along with the Bible class material we've been studying because of the constraint of time. We're going to do that a little bit this morning. In Philippians chapter 2 and in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We're going to consider the rest of that section as well up to verse 18, Lord willing, in the lesson this morning. He's spoken to the Philippians in chapter 2 about their need to humility and to service of each other to possess the same mind, look out for not just their own interests, but for each other's interests. And to that, as he had continued the thought from chapter 1, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Standing for truth, preserving the unity in the spirit, as Ephesians 4 says, in the bond of peace. And that necessitated the right disposition of each individual. And from that, he sprung into, in verse 5, the example of Christ down through verse 11, the mind that he spoke about concerning humility and service of one another is expressed supremely in the example of Christ, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but took the form of a bondservant, came in the likeness of man. And not just did he humble himself to that point, but even to the point of the death of the cross, and God exalted him. So something that might jeopardize the unity within a congregation is selfish ambition. That's a sin that's condemned several times in Scripture. And the world really praises that and encourages for us to be ambitious for ourselves, but that has no place within the Lord's church. That's not how Jesus did things. He looked to be exalted through His humility before God in service of us, and indeed God exalted Him, and Scripture tells us that. That if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will lift us up. We will be exalted in the way that is supremely blessed. We can't even imagine the kind of exaltation and glory that we'll be able to share in and participate in and to to witness 
if we submit to God and are welcomed home for eternity. And so with that in mind, the example of Christ through humble service to us, but also in humble submission to the Father's will, he says, therefore, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And so it's involved in more than just submissiveness to each other in the realm of humility in regard to looking out for each other's interests, but it falls under the greater umbrella of submission to God. And the number one thing that we can do as members of a local church to preserve the unity is to work out our salvation. And that's exactly what Jesus did on this earth. He, he submitted to the Father's will. And I want to suggest to you that that example of Christ is to be emulated through our own humility and service of each other, but also through our humility and service and obedience to God through the gospel. I want to tell you that when Jesus took the form of man and a bondservant, he acknowledged throughout his life his responsibility. In John chapter 4 and in verse 34, in the scene of him speaking to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, he told his Disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He recognized his responsibility. He also considered his need to rely upon his father and understood the blessed reliability of his father. In John chapter 5 and verse 19, for instance, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he sees the son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. It is certainly important that Jesus did not come to this earth to carry out his own will, but was always stressing the unity between him and his Father and the Holy Spirit. He did not come to carry out his own desires, and his overcoming of temptation expressed that fervidness of desire to carry out his Father's will, and he knew that the only way to fulfill his mission was to accept the reliability of God and to lean on him. He understood his call to irreproachability. He understood his responsibility in relying on God and the call to be without sin. In John 9 and verse 5, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He lived his life understanding that he was called to the high standard before God, that sin was never acceptable. He was called to be irreproachable. He also understood his ability to rejoice in his relationship with his Father and the fact that there was a promise to him in his resurrection and exaltation and the restoration of his glory that he possessed before he ever came in the flesh. And he lived his life with that kind of joy. In Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it shows just how strong that was and what it allowed for him to do says we need to look unto Jesus, who is the author and finish of our faith. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Philippians 2.12, he says, therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I believe he extends the example of Christ and his humble servitude to the obedience and the reliance on God to the irreproachability that we are called to and to the ability to rejoice as children of God, we need to emulate Christ in every single way. Consider first in verse 12 the very real nature of our personal responsibility in discussions pertaining to salvation. A common misunderstanding of salvation 
and sin, as Harry was talking about before, has led to a torturing of this particular verse. There are those in the world who suggest that the onus of salvation is completely and entirely upon God. That man has no responsibility at all. It is entirely left to God for the salvation of each individual. I want to tell you that we don't have the power to save ourselves. And that salvation inherently is very much a passive thing. He is saving us. But it of necessity involves our coming together with Him in unison and submission to His will. Certainly we have a responsibility. For example, consider a few quotes. In Wu's word studies on Philippians 2 and in verse 12, he says, He exhorts them to work out their own salvation. Let us be clear, first of all, as to what this exhortation does not mean. He says it does not mean to work for one's salvation. Just pause there. He says to work out your own salvation. Let us be clear what it doesn't mean, first of all. It does not mean to work for one's salvation. And he gives two reasons that are false presuppositions that go into his interpretation of this verse. First, Paul was writing to those who are already saved. There's a number of times in Scripture where Paul condemns the mindset of thinking you're already saved. He does it in Philippians 3. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. He's not writing to a people who are already saved. He's writing to a people who are added to the body of Christ and have salvation in the form of a promise. And you need to work toward it and accomplish it by your submission to the gospel. Second, he says, salvation is not a work of man for God, but a work of God for man. And that work was accomplished at the cross. I want to tell you, when Jesus said it is finished, he's suggesting his part in this is finished. His part in submission to the death on the cross is finished. But there's a lot left to do on our end. Vine, in his... uh, In his definitions of words, we need to watch out when we're using that because sometimes he defines a word as it is appearing in the Greek language and then he gives his comments. He gives his comments on Philippians 2 and verse 12. He says, where your own salvation refers especially to freedom from strife and vainglory. To that same thought, Hawthorne comments, Paul has just spoken out sharply against Christians looking out for their own individual personal interests. I want to tell you that's not what Paul did in verse 4. He didn't speak out sharply against us looking toward our own individual interests. He says, not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. We've got interests of our own that we need to look out for. He's not condemning that. He's saying you need to value other people's needs above your own. He says, hence it is highly unlikely that here he now reverses himself by commanding them to focus on their own individual salvation. So he explains that salvation refers to spiritual health And work out your own refers to a corporate action of the church and an effort for the common life together as a community. What he's saying is, work out your own salvation has to do with us making sure we keep the peace in the church. Not to my individual standing before God. That couldn't be further from the truth. To that same end, one comments, For Paul, salvation is by divine grace alone, and thus is God's work alone. Christians have no contribution to make to salvation, such that their failure to do so would jeopardize the final outcome. The command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, refers to the active role of believers in sanctification. And so the suggestion is that you are saved and you're once for all saved. And you cannot lose your salvation. And as those in the denominations and those who are believers of Calvinistic era often do, they distinguish between salvation and sanctification. They divorce them from each other, making them independent. 
I want us to notice in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, Paul brings them together. God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and the belief in the truth. And all that's just to represent the fact that you can have a verse as clear as Philippians 2 and verse 12, that we are to work out our own salvation. Jeremiah's responsibility for his salvation is just that. It's his responsibility. And no one else can fulfill it. And because they have biases and presuppositions that are erring and preconceived notions that are not scriptural, they will completely torture a text. I want to tell you, you cannot read Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 with an honest heart without recognizing that individuals are called to submit to God so that they can be saved, to live a life separate from sin, to live above reproach, and to rejoice in doing so, not complaining. Paul is telling us that our salvation is up to us as far as our part on faith is concerned. That's exactly what he's saying. Paul's command brings out responsibility in the very language of the passage. You notice there, he says, you've always obeyed in my presence. Now you need to obey in my absence. Work out your own salvation. Work out the tense of the verb indicates that he has something continuous in mind. Continue to work out your salvation. He says, you've always obeyed, so work out continually your salvation. I want us to notice that it began all the way back when the gospel was preached to these people in Philippi. He mentioned that they had worked out or obeyed in his presence. In Acts the 16th chapter, after receiving the Macedonian call in a vision to come over and help them and preach the gospel, is what they concluded. They reached a necessary conclusion in hearing of and receiving that vision of the Macedonian call that God is calling them to preach the gospel. They reached a a group of women. Among them was a woman named Lydia. And it says in verse 15 of Acts 16, she and her household were baptized. So she begged them, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she persuaded us. A jailer was also converted in this text. In chapter 16 and verse 33, we're familiar with the story. We're in verse 33. After asking what he must do to be saved, that they were taken the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. And then he had brought them into his house and set food before them. What is he doing? He obeyed the gospel initially. He's still working out his salvation in aiding gospel preachers in their work of preaching saying, you were very faithful when I was among you, and now I'm absent from you. You need to continue to work out your salvation. Is their salvation final? No, this very language suggests that they need to continue toward the end of it being worked out. The word translated into work out is the Greek word katergotsomai, and Strong defines it as to work fully, to accomplish. And so, They need to continue working to accomplish, finalize their salvation. Paul, in another place, in 2 Corinthians 5, said, As long as we're in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So knowing the terror of the Lord, he says, we persuade men. Because we are in the body, our salvation is not finalized. We need to work it out. He says in verse 16, You need to hold fast the word of life. Notice, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That's that final day, the coming of the Lord, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. If their salvation was finalized at this point, and Paul's talking about something different, what sense does verse 16 make? 
How might he run in vain? How might his labor be in vain? It's very clear in the Scripture that if we obey the Gospel only to fall away, then that is in vain. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 10, for example, he speaks to the Galatians saying that they're turning back to weak and beggarly elements. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. He says, I am afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul, you taught us the Gospel. You, you, you led us to truth. We're children of God. What do you mean your labor's in vain? You're turning back to the old law and away from Christ. He says in chapter 5 of Galatians in verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. I want to tell you that we have an obligation and responsibility to work out continually as long as we draw breath our salvation. And the moment we stop working out our salvation is the moment we lose it. The moment we lose hope because we've fallen from grace. You just consider the fact that he says we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. What's he mean by that? Well, I want to tell you that fear and trembling could refer to a number of different things. But Paul expressly uses that phrase in a very specific way in Scripture. Consider, for example, in 2 Corinthians 7 and in verse 13, when he's speaking about Titus that was sent to them so that he could bring a report back to Paul on whether they had accepted his letter in 1 Corinthians and had repented. And they had. That's the whole point of 2 Corinthians 7. But he says, we have been comforted in your comfort and rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus. That's who he's talking about when he says in verse 15 that his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. A man sent from an apostle with authority of the gospel came to them to see if they were obedient, if they had repented. And because of the gravity of his coming that they knew he possessed and came with, they feared and trembled. They knew the Word of God was coming with power, that Paul would be right behind them particularly, and they feared and trembled that they would obey the Lord. In Ephesians 6 and verse 5, for example, bondservants are told to be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling before the masters. I understand that that may be true in another context. He's talking about our relationship to Christ Throughout these relationships, he says, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, you obey your masters with fear and trembling before God. It's your responsibility. Your soul is in your hands, if you will, on whether you're going to commit it to God or whether you're going to take it down your own path. In Hebrews 12 and verse 28, we can understand this language because although this old law is nailed to the cross and we don't come to Mount Sinai, we come to Mount Zion. Amount of rejoicing and confidence, amount that is unshakable. He says, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is still a consuming fire. And we need to work out our salvation with that in mind. Harry alluded to the passage of Ezekiel, the 18th chapter where it very clearly expresses the individual responsibility in the realm of salvation. It says, The soul who sins shall die, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Notice in verse 31, he tells them to cast away all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
Ezekiel 36 says God will give us a new heart and a new spirit. But that is harmonized with ourselves getting a new heart and a new spirit. It says, I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. Not, I will turn you and you will live. There's a sense where we can say that because he's giving them direction. He's calling them to his love and his mercy. But he's telling them, you have to do it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But I want to tell you there's a caveat to this. Because if he told them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, and he left it at that. And he suggested that they were completely and totally on their own. I know we understand that we could not do it by ourselves. Because you know what by yourself means? Entirely by yourself and working out your salvation. It means this good book in your hand you don't have. Because you didn't write it. You could not have come up with the information in this book. You would not have known the way to salvation. You would not have considered the death of deity on a cross, a slave's death, so that you could be rescued and redeemed from your sin. You wouldn't have had that thought at all. No philosopher, no religious person, no human being who has ever set foot on this earth could have articulated and considered and thought of such an intricate and flawless plan. On your own completely means you don't even have the Bible. And so there's a caveat to it that God works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. But what does that mean? In Matthew 19 and verse 26, to the rich young ruler, as he went away, he told Jesus told His disciples, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Similarly, in John 15 and in verse 5, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Without him means there is no vine to abide in. With him means you make sure you are in him. You're hearing his word. You're allowing him to prune you. You're allowing him to cleanse you. You're allowing him to direct you. We are not without Christ. In John chapter 6 and in verse 68, I think we see another way in which This is true, that God works in us, that we're not completely alone. Simon Peter understood the point. When others went away and Jesus asked if they would go away, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's understanding the reliability of Jesus and Jesus alone. The reliability of his words and his words alone. It's not just something we can fall on if we want to. It's something that if we want to have salvation, we must fall on. Only He has the words of life. In Acts 4 and verse 12, the apostles put it this way, There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's the whole point of Philippians 2 and verses 9 through 11. In the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the exclusive source of salvation and therefore is of infinite dependability. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 33, quoting from the Old Testament, Paul put it this way, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That means if we understand the fact that we rely fully on him, we have responsibility, but we take that free will and that understanding of our responsibility and we rely fully on him, taking nothing of ourselves, not leaning on our own understanding, but fully leaning on him that we will not be put to shame. You cannot fail in salvation if you understand the reliability 
of God. Oh yes, he says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. He also reinforces it with the fact that it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You notice there he says he works in you in the present and active sense of the word. As you work out, he works in you. In Ephesians, the first chapter, we studied about how Paul wanted them to know about the power of God toward those who believe, present tense. As we believe, as we render our faith to God in obedience, the Word of God is powerfully working in us. God is working in us. He began it, and He certainly will complete it. This is what Paul said in chapter 1 and verse 6 of Philippians concerning the Philippians' salvation. He's confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that's not just talking about their sharing with Him financially. There are some who would suggest that this this fellowship of chapter 1 is exclusively the sharing of chapter 4. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that they have been faithful, not just in, in, in participating, not just in in a manner of proxy, if you will, through sending him money, and he's doing all the work, they're just contributing in that way. But they are in Philippi, and he is in prison, and, and both of them are standing firm for the truth. And he encourages them to continue that. God began that work, and he's going to complete it in them. God works in us, certainly, for our salvation. But how does he do it? It's important. How does God work in us? Is it by a miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit? That's what most in the religious world would like you for to believe. And what that does is it comes from an erroneous view of man's nature, of, of total depravity, as Harry was alluding to earlier, but even the nature of Scripture. You see, the reason they believe that the Holy Spirit must operate on our hearts miraculously is so that we could even begin to receive the Word of God, which is the gospel to salvation. In other words, God created us in a way and revealed His Word to us in a way where we can't understand without a miracle occurring. And so these presuppositions go into a false interpretation of very clear text. God works in us does not mean He works in us in some miraculous means. He revealed to us His will and adapted it to who we are as He created us. And that's exactly what we see at the beginning of the faith of the Philippians. You notice a few things in Acts chapter 16. In verse 10, after they had concluded that God called them to preach the gospel to those in Macedonia, that's exactly what happened. Notice in verse 13, especially with the example of Lydia. It said, On the Sabbath day we went out to the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. They were speaking to them. That's key. And a certain woman named Lydia heard us. So they were speaking to them. We can understand what they were speaking to them because they were called to preach the gospel, verse 10. And Lydia heard them. What did she hear? She heard the gospel. It says that she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And then it says this. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. What does it mean that he opened her heart to heed the things? Well, we know the outcome is that her and her household were baptized, and she said, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she persuaded them. And so the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken, that is, heed the gospel. The result was obedience out of her own free will to the gospel. And so it has to harmonize with this. Did he open her heart by some miraculous means? 
Was she incapable of receiving the Word of God? And God chose Lydia to be open to the truth. And all the others were closed without that miraculous operation. If that's the case, God is a respecter of persons. Far be it from what the Scripture says. That is not what happened. When we speak of the heart, we speak of, as Harry preached on the last two sermons, the intellect and the will that is changed by the Word of God and are listening to it and thinking on it, and that leads to a change of action. That's exactly what happened here. When the apostles preached the gospel and men and women submitted to it, it was completely within harmony of all the other times they did. So notice in Acts 17 what they go on to do. As they preach the gospel in Thessalonica, it says, Paul, as was his custom, went into them, and notice a few words, for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, and some of them were persuaded. You see that? Reasoning, explaining, demonstrating, and persuasion. We talk about that in every other part of our lives. We reason with each other. We explain each other different facts and information and, and our feelings and our thoughts. And, and we persuade each other with that information. Because that's how God created us. That's how He opened up Lydia's heart. If there were any other hearts that were closed, it was because they did not want to believe, lest the light of the glory of God and the gospel shine on them. Second Corinthians 4. He opened her heart because she had an honest heart. And the gospel made sense to her. Evicted her. And she obeyed. The same is true with the Philippian jailer. He asked, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And then he was baptized. And notice in verse 34 it says, he rejoiced having believed. Included in him having believed is his submission to the command to be baptized for the remission of his sins. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 makes it very clear. When he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because God, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You see the parallel there? God works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The word of God effectively works in you to will and do for his good pleasure. Yes, we need to work out our own salvation understanding. We are responsible for it but not with the understanding or thought that we can do it of our own accord, but that we rely upon the eternal wisdom of God and His infallible plan and trust in its efficacy, and it'll get us there where we can rejoice for eternity. You notice there in Philippians 2 and in verse 12, He says He works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. He works in us to will. Part of the human heart, along with the intellect and the will, is the emotions in all three parts of man are appealed to in Scripture. Do you desire salvation? Do you will to do His will? The way that we grow our will to be willing to do God's will is to read and comprehend His Word. In Philippians 2 and verse 12, it includes the incentive of judgment with fear and trembling. God tells us about judgment. And if we want to avoid that judgment, avoid that condemnation, we obey His will. It gives us the incentive of a better life. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, he talks about godliness is profitable for not only this life, but that which is to come. If you want to live free from a lot of pain and anguish and sorrow, the gospel is the way to go. 
He tells us about Christ's love, which the Apostle Paul says compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Look how much Jesus loves us. Shouldn't that motivate you? We desire to be transformed into His very image, 1 John chapter 3 and verses 2 through 3. And he who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. We desire heaven, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, says that's where our citizenship is. That's why he calls them in verse 1 of chapter 4, so stand fast in the Lord. He works in us to will to do His will. He gives us the reasons why we should follow Him. But then He tells us how to do it. In Galatians 5, it talks about the Spirit lusting against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. We don't just desire it, but we have to know how to do it. We have to know what to follow. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, we're told that the Scripture, as inspired of God, thoroughly equips us. But I want to tell you that as we work out our salvation and as God works in us, we need to understand what the aim is. Yes, our salvation, but as we have it in the form of a promise and we still exist in the body, it includes our conduct on earth. Our working out our salvation is while we're amongst a world full of unbelievers and those who are unrighteous and not walking by faith. So what is that a call to among them? It's a call to irreproachability, to live above sin, to live above reproach. That is the aim of God's work in us and our responsibility to carry out. You notice there in verse 15, after he says, do all things without complaining or disputing, he says, that you may become blameless, harmless, without fault, children of God, shining his lights in the world. The word that is the Greek word kina. It means in order that. He's telling us, the reason you need to do these things without complaining and disputing is so that you can be blameless and innocent and harmless children of God. Someone says, that's not what salvation is about. Salvation is about recognizing you're in total corruption and, and to think even a little bit about being able to live above sin is arrogant and sinful in itself. I want to tell you, the Bible's telling us right here that Jesus died on the cross, God revealed the Word, He was raised from the dead so that you could live free from sin. You are called to be living above reproach, to be blameless, to be innocent, as the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Version render it. Children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What, what did that even mean? If we cannot be identified as being distinct above the reproach of this world, above the sin of this world, what does it mean to be called a child of God? You know, Jesus in John chapter 8 made the distinction between those who are really children of Abraham and those who are actually children of the devil based on whether they do the will of that one. They called themselves children of Abraham, but because they were liars and murderers, they really showed themselves to be the children of Satan. You recognize that? To be called a child of God necessitates this conclusion. That I am called to live above reproach. Oh, I can be humble and acknowledge my past guilt, acknowledge my own weaknesses, acknowledge my struggles. That's the whole point in overcoming sin, is that I've got to be humble enough to acknowledge I've got a problem. It's my desire that is pulling me away, and I need to to mold my will to be God's will, to be driven by the things of God and not by the things of the world. Is that not humble enough to acknowledge that we have a problem, that we rely fully upon Christ, and then we can be 
above reproach in his sight? This is exactly what we're called to. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 13, Peter tells them to gird up the loins of their mind and be sober, resting their hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. And then he brings the contrast in. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. You know, that's exactly Jesus' point. In John the 17th chapter, when he's praying on behalf of his chosen apostles, but certainly by extension it applies to us, when he speaks of, in his prayer to God about how he gave them God's word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world, he says, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. You know, the obedience of Jesus and His perfect sacrifice, therefore, that He offered, is so that we could be cleansed from our sins to serve the living God. Ryan read from Hebrews, the ninth chapter, before the Lord's Supper this morning. You notice there in verse 13, it says, if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the, for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience, notice this, from dead works to serve the living God. Brethren, if we don't understand that about the power of Christ's sacrifice, then we don't understand it. He did not die so that we could continue in our sins. He died and sanctifying Himself toward the Father's will so that we could live a sanctified life. You notice there, He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify as we live according to the will of God. Again, if we don't, then Paul's work, he says, is in vain. Otherwise, I labor in vain. If you don't live above reproach, then your salvation is swirling down the drain and my labor has been empty and void. Jude, verse 5, puts it this way. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. If we don't live above reproach, if we don't live holy lives of purity, and we aren't transformed daily to be representatives of Christ on this earth, then we were only saved to be destroyed. you realize that? Only saved to be destroyed. What a waste. We need to realize the aim of God's work in us. And if we realize the aim of God's work in us, then I think that we can understand and appreciate the hindrance that Paul warns about in verse 14. The hindrance to our living above reproach. The hindrance to our accomplishing our salvation by the grace of God. He says, do all things. What things? You work out your salvation. God works in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. Do all of that without complaining and disputing. And then you will be blameless, harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Do all things without complaining or disputing. This is where some of those quotations that I began the lesson with would come in to suggest this salvation has to do with the preservation of the unity and harmony of the congregation, not to be complaining and disputing among one another. I don't think that's what he's saying here. God is trying to work in you through His Word. And for you to complain and dispute with God's will is to fail 
and living up to this call. And this is what the Israelites did in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in verse 10, among other things, the Apostle Paul says, Don't complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. When God directs, when He dictates from His heavenly throne, it is not within our prerogative to quarrel with Him and reason with Him, to complain, to dispute. To have a debate with God is a futile practice in itself. And it's a practice that will lead to destruction. I think this is what James is talking about when he says in James chapter 1 and in verse 19, remembering in verse 18 the topic of the word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. What? The word of truth. Slow to speak and slow to wrath. Wrath against two. Against God who's telling you what to do. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is His plan for me to be righteous. It's what He dictates as right conduct and how to be justified before Him. So when He gives me a command not to do something or to do something, and I immediately respond with vitriol and frustration and dispute against His holy and divine and flawless Word, the only result is standing before Him with sin. On my heart. Not being right before Him whatsoever. And in James chapter 1, he's considering a context and a situation where there are brethren who possibly could convince themselves in their reasoning with God and His will that what is not found in there is indeed His will. And you can deceive yourself, but in the end, it won't change the outcome. It will only Cause the loss of your soul. Do all things without complaining or disputing. And instead, you shine as lights in the world. In John chapter 3 and verse 21, Jesus said, He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Light is going to draw those who love the truth to it. But he doesn't just draw us to the truth so that we can claim to accept it and not be changed by it. In Matthew 5 and verse 14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I believe a parallel passage could be found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he tells them, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I want to tell you that when you are reading your Bible and you are applying some things and leaving some things unapplied, don't fool yourself into thinking you're letting your light shine. Because a basket is what you're doing. You're putting a basket over your light. We need to let the entire light of God's Word shine through us. In 2 Corinthians 4 and in verse 4, we notice that to be the light of the Gospel and we reflect its glory. In verse 6, the Apostle Paul mentioned, It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says there in Philippians 2 and verse 16, the method to this success is to hold fast the word of life. And lastly, and definitely not least, while we have responsibility 
that we can rely upon God, that we are called to live above reproach. We are called down a path that gives us the constant, incessant ability to rejoice. This comes from faithfulness. It does not come through compromise. It does not come through picking and choosing. Because no matter how much a person can convince themselves that they've got a reason to rejoice, if they have compromised with the truth, if they're not living a life above reproach, they're holding on to some sin. You know that person is bothered in their conscience. If they're not, it's, it's probably too late. They're seared and they're beyond the, the ability to call them to repentance. Hebrews 6. You cannot rejoice. You cannot have the kind of joy the Gospel t- talks about without first being fully faithful to the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5, he speaks about their fellowship from the first day and until now. In verse 7, that fellowship in the Gospel includes the defense and confirmation of the Gospel. He calls them in verses 27 through 30 to strive together for the faith of the Gospel, not terrified by adversaries. And he tells them that they have been granted to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's the kind of faithfulness we're talking about. It's the only kind of faithfulness that we see in Scripture. And in that way of living, in that sacrificial life for the Lord, there is rejoicing. That's why he says, If I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. He says, For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Faith is spoken of as certainly a sacrifice. A service. It takes energy. It takes effort. It takes our love. It takes the entirety of our being. But I want to tell you that there is joy and peace in that. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 15 and verse 13. He says, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In the entirety of the Gospel, especially in Romans with the bookends, obedience of faith or obedience to the faith. When he talks about believing, he's talking about walking by faith according to the Word of God. Weighing all your decisions with the inerrant wisdom and Word of God. Making the sacrifices that are necessary. Denying yourself every time you need to. He says, in that life is joy and peace. Why would we ever complain and dispute about that? In 1 John 5 and verse 3, he says the commandments are not burdensome. In this is rejoice ability. There's a lot of people that don't have the ability to rejoice. They seek it in money and fame and fortune. They seek it in material things. They seek it in philosophy and vain human wisdom. And they cannot grasp hold of the ability to rejoice no matter what. There's a reason why it speaks about that joy, that peace, as that which is beyond understanding. A joy that we can have always. And Paul says, again, I will say rejoice. It's because it could not be and cannot be understood by the world. They don't have Christ. They're not the spiritually discerning and spiritually minded people that 1 Corinthians 2 talks about as being necessary to receive the will of God and understand and comprehend and apply it. This rejoiceability is in the face of death. Chapter 1 and verses 21 of Philippians. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's in the face of sacrifice and service. It's in the face of anything. A life to faith and a life to obedience to the will of God is a life of immeasurable blessing that will ultimately end in victory. This was read in the Bible class this morning. 
is a favorite verse of mine, I'm sure of yours also, that shows us just the measure of joy that comes with being in Christ. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In Romans 8 and verse 35, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's the life of service in Christ. Sounds pretty gruesome. At times it can be a struggle. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, or angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brethren, we need to be careful to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. Understanding the great call it is, the great responsibility we have, never forgetting how much we can rely upon God and Him alone. Understanding the high call to faithfulness and purity in the Gospel. And understanding the immeasurable blessing that comes with it. But we can rejoice always knowing that we're with God, that we're in Christ, and we have that crown of righteousness awaiting for us. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the Gospel, we want to give you the opportunity to participate in a wonderful thing that we get to participate in. To be a child of God. To walk by faith each day knowing that God is there for us and He's calling us home by His Word. You can have that security. You can have that joy if you just submit to His will. Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And we urge you to obey that if you haven't already. If there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward as well while you stand and sing.